Yesterday I, uh, yesterday, I had to go to the Apple store at Lakeside Mall, um, so I set my appointment, do all my things. Um, Apple is great, your iPhones and Apple computers and stuff, um, they're great until they break, uh, because then it's a pain in the neck and you have to go somewhere to get them fixed. So I, uh, I go to the Apple store, um, which wasn't a big deal, it was the first time I'd been in a mall in a long time. and. I, I, I was waiting for my stuff, so I got to sit back and do a little bit of reading and drink some coffee, and, and I was doing some people watching and saw a few people, and it, it was nice. To get into the mall was the pain, was the pain of the trip, right? Um, because when you're driving there, it's usually not that bad, which was the case. It, Saturday, there were some people on the road, but it wasn't terrible. And then once you're in the mall, it wasn't a big deal. But between driving there and getting inside, there's this one experience that I hate, and it's called the parking lot. Now we're driving, I'm trying to find a place to park, and it's at Lakeside, so they have like that little, that little uh, parking garage, and, and I'm trying to kind of work my way through there. Um, and just to really, like, I, something I noticed while we were doing this, um, there's a very, very fun dynamic that takes place in a parking garage. Um, it's kind of like hunting. You see somebody walking out of, the, out of the store, out of the mall, and they're heading to their car. And you're in your car, and you lock in, and you see, where are they going? Where are they going? Where are they going? That's a spot. And then when you pull up, somebody else might have already claimed that spot. So then you're angry. So you're looking for your next one. And it's like ducks flying across a blind, right? Like, where are they going? Where are they going? You're sitting back. You're watching. Maybe not this one. So you hurry up and you go over to the next lane over. And you go over to the next lane over. And then finally, you're there. And like, boom, great. That's the spot. That's my spot. So you pull up and you put your blinker on. Because you're sitting there waiting for them to pull out because I just claim that spot. Now, some jerk doesn't listen to that and slides in. You want to fight, right? But regardless, you're sitting there. You got, I got my blinker on now at this point. I'm 40 miles away from the front door because I've been following this duck all the way across, right? So I'm parked. I put my blinker on. And then I got to wait for them to pull out. And it seems like everybody that gets in their car, it takes them 47 minutes to pull out of the spot. I have an appointment to get to, to get my computer fixed on a Saturday morning, and I got to get back for mass. I'm struggling with this. I'm aggravated. Why is it taking you an hour and a half to get out of the spot? Just put your phone down and start driving. Hurry up, right? I know I'm alone probably in this experience. Anybody else feels that like... The worst part about it is that as this is going on, there's a line of cars that's working its way all the way to Veterans Boulevard behind me. And those people are just as upset that I'm sitting here waiting for this spot. And they know I'm waiting because my blinker's on. So they decide they're going to whip around me and they're going to wave at me really interestingly with one finger. It's a real fun experience, though, when you got your collar on and they do that, and then you look at them, and they like, uh, look at it, look at it, yep, yep, go to confession, all right? <laughs> Finally, pull into the spot, all the anxiety starts to wear down, and you walk in. 
But in that experience, in that whole experience of being in this parking garage and, and fighting and hunting and all this stuff and, and being aggravated and, and saying some not nice words and needing to go to confession myself and like, like all of this experience, it's really, really easy whenever I get, when we get stressed out in this situation, when I get stressed out, to lose the idea of like who I am. It's really easy to start getting so focused on one thing that I lose track of what I profess and what I do and who I am. I know I'm probably alone in that. That was sarcasm, by the way. I think whenever we get so focused on the task at hand, we get this tunnel vision kind of thing, it's really easy to lose track of who, what we're here to profess this morning. And Jesus, today in our gospel, is giving us a commandment to live by. Now remember... The, the Jews had the Ten Commandments, right? The first three commandments, all about how I'm supposed to relate to God. The next seven commandments, all about how I'm supposed to relate to my brother, relate to my friends, relate to other people, right? When Jesus looks at his disciples at the Last Supper, it's the final time that he has a chance to teach them, to work with them, to form them before he's going to the cross within, within 24 hours. Like 18 hours later, he's going to be crucified and dead. And Jesus looks at them and says, I give you a new commandment. That would have registered so profound in the minds of his disciples. This past Lent, we broke open all of the beauty about the Last Supper, all of the, all of the wonderful imagery and symbolism and what it is that Jesus is doing at the Last Supper and how he's rewriting the way in which they're going to worship, how he's basically editing what God gave to the people, that he changes the Passover meal to include himself and say, we're going to do this in remembrance of me. This is how God wants you to worship. And then before the last, after they have dinner, before he goes off, he then says, and if that's how we're going to worship, this is how I want you to live. I give you a new commandment. Love one another as I love you. Love one another the way I love you. Now, one of the things we have to remember is that Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday are meant to be seen as one big event. So when he's saying, love one another as I love you, he's not necessarily saying, love one another and be nice to the outcast, like I was. He's not necessarily saying, love one another and look past the faults and the sins of the other, just like I did with you, Matthew, because you were the IRS agent that was crooked and nobody liked, right? Like the tax collector, like you're the one that I'm looking past the, the faults, the externals, the reputation, and I'm going to love you. 
Love one another, not like you, Thomas, how you're probably going to experience this, where the doubt is just kind of creeping in, and you're more focused on that than you are on me sometimes. Like, love one another beyond that. He's not just saying these things. Because when he says love, the Greek word he uses for love is one of the four Greek words they have for love. And this is the greatest and the biggest. And he's saying, love one another. Be willing to sacrifice for the sake of the other. Will the good of the other. Be willing to die for the other. Just like I have loved How do we love others? Like, take, take a moment right now. How, how is it this week that I have concretely loved another person in a way that I felt it? In a way that I had to sacrifice for it? Because it's not comfortable, oftentimes, to love. Whenever, the, whenever some people are talking about so-and-so, they got like the real good reputation, and oh yeah, she did this, and like look at what she's doing now, and oh, did you see what she posted on Facebook? Like, uh-huh. It's really hard to swallow a comment and not jump in. It's really hard in a parking garage not to get angry at the person for taking two and a half hours to pull out of a spot. But God is calling us to concretely love in a way that costs something to us. In a way that we feel it. Parents know what this is like. That I sacrifice sleep for my sick child. You ever had to take care of somebody that was completely and totally dependent on you? You know exactly what this is like. That I'm going to sacrifice my comfort. I'm going to sacrifice my time. I'm going to sacrifice this outing or this thing that I want to do, this commitment, this invitation for the sake of someone else. That's the kind of love that Jesus is inviting us into. That's the kind of love that Jesus wants us to make incarnate, make real in the world. And he says, if you do this, you will be my disciple. Like, if you do this, you will communicate to the rest of the world my love for them. You will echo, you will reflect my love for the rest of the world. You will make me present again. When we think about this master-disciple relationship, the easiest way people talk about it is teacher and student. But it's a little bit more than that. Because when a disciple is living, there's no question of who their master is. They pick up on their mannerisms. They pick up on the way they live. They pick up on all of who that person is. Is, and it becomes them. 
And at our baptism, Jesus, at our baptism, Jesus took hold of our life. God blessed us and made us his disciples, adopted us into a family, and what happens is, is that we become Jesus to the rest of the world. How do we look? Would somebody be confused by your life next to Jesus' life? Because they should look similar. And I say this to myself as well because I know I'm not perfect with it. I can be a very, very deformed picture of, of Jesus most of the time. Especially when I'm trying to park at Lakeside Mall. <laughs> there was a, uh, I, I've used this image before, but... Um, Mahatma Gandhi was a, uh, was, worked for, for justice and, and peace and equality in, in India um, for a particular class of people that were very, very discriminated against and were just like the low end of the, of the spectrum of the world. Um, he was Hindu, but so much of what he spoke and so much of what he said and he did were, were Christian values. And somebody once asked him, said, like, look, why, why have you never converted to Christianity? It seems to be so in line with the, what you preach and what you speak about and what you talk about. And Gandhi's response was very, very profound. He said, I love your Jesus. I respect your Jesus. I like your Jesus. The problem is, is that your Christians are nothing like your Jesus. Ouch. <laughs> That's an indictment. When people look at us, do they, do they see Jesus or do they see someone else or something else? Does it cause a scandal when we don't reflect the master as his disciple? I'll end with this. Again, I think it might be something that I might have, spoke, I might have said at a homily um, before, but let me, let me just... Bear with me, because I think it drives a point home. Uh, da Vinci, whenever he was painting his, uh, his Last Supper image, uh, um, yeah, Leonardo da Vinci was painting his Last Supper image, um, this very, very famous image of Jesus at the Last Supper. One of the things he did, and oftentimes what he did whenever there were, there were people in a picture, um, what he would do is he would find models. He would find people in the world, real-life people, and he would paint them into the image. And that was the way that he had real, re realistic faces and, and realistic bodies, right? So one day he was in the church in Milan, uh, the cathedral church in Milan, and he like, like, for example, he looked up into the choir loft and saw a young man who was singing, and he was like, oh, that, that's my Jesus. Like his face, just, just the way he looked, the way he carried himself, like, oh, that's my Jesus. So after Mass, he went and he asked the guy, and he said, hey, can, you, can I paint you? Can I put you into the painting? And he, yeah, sure. So the young man came, and I think it was like three days long. He, he would come, and he would come back just to get all the fine details right for the image. Over the next 11 months, he painted 11 of the other faces. So he has 12 of the 13 total faces. He's got Jesus and 11 of his disciples painted. He found the people. He found his Peter. He found his Matthew. He found his Thomas. He found all of these different people. And he painted them into the image. The one that he could not find was Judas. 
He couldn't find the image of Judas. So he would walk around into the public square in Milan, and, he, and sure enough, he, he couldn't find Judas. So da Vinci left his, his masterpiece unfinished for 11 years. He walked away from it and he said, I cannot find Judas. He would walk around, he would still look for Judas, but he just could not find him. Until one day he was walking in the public square and he came across this man and he said, that's him. The hardness of life, kind of, kind of, kind of stoic, sterile face, a little bit anger. And he went, that's my Judas. It's got to be an awkward conversation, by the way. Can I paint you? You want to be Judas, right? Like, but he went up to this man and he asked him. Sure enough, the guy agrees, and he and he comes up to the studio and he paints him. And about two or three hours into painting this man, the model starts to cry. He starts to weep. And Da Vinci stops for a second and says, "What's wrong?" He says, "Master, do you not recognize me?" I'm sorry, I don't. I was here 11 years ago and you painted me as Jesus. We have the ability to reflect the face of Christ to the rest of the world. We have the ability to reflect the face of Christ to the rest of the world, but that face oftentimes is bloody and suffering. <laughs> but still at peace and joyful. Or we have the ability to reflect someone else. As we come to this Mass, as we depart today, who is it that we reflect to the rest of the world? Are we living as Jesus' disciples? Are we echoing the voice of someone else? Today, we become more like the master so that we may more effectively be his disciples.